Hello. And a festive welcome to Liars Leap, where writers write, actors read, audience listens, and everybody wins. Just as long as they get their tactical voting right. <laughs> Tonight we celebrate all things sugar and spice, especially mince pies. We have, for your delight and pleasure, a selection box of five delicious stories. We'll have three temptingly sweet tales in the first half, followed by a sugar rush interval, during which you can hunt down the last of the mince pies or debate the difference between a satsuma, a tangerine, and a clementine. And then we'll have the infamous Lysley Christmas book quiz. <laughs> and end with a pair of peculiarly cold stories. Now, just so that you know, it is two days before Krampusnacht. The night when Santa's rather less cheery companion arrives to drag those who have been bad to hell. And we want to leave plenty of room in his sack for certain politicians. So please, set your phones to off or to silent nights. And we will begin. Our first story of the evening will be The Sugar Merchant by Lisa Farrell. Read by Paul Clark. Lisa is a creative writing graduate and ex-bookseller, now a full-time mum and part-time freelance writer. She intends to rely on snowballs and yule logs to get her through this festive season. Paul trained at the Central School and always got cast as a baddie or a monster. Or, for rarity, a bad monster. Now a photographer and occasional performer, he finds the League stories islands of relative sanity in his life. Paul! The Sugar Merchant by Lisa Farrell. The night they banned it, I became the richest man in the city. Instantly, sugar was worth its weight in gold. I travelled around and sold pieces in back alleys and black markets. I exchanged it for silk, for jewels, for dowries and life savings. Nothing is worth more than that which we cannot have. Soon. I was decked like a festive tree, adorned with ruby rings and gold chains, and still I carried a sugar loaf in every pocket. I never partook myself, of course, never let the white stuff pass my lips. I'd seen what one taste could lead to, seen the need in their eyes and decay in their mouths. I didn't want my perfect teeth to rot. Who could sell anything best. Yet, I got greedy all the same. 
That time was coming, Yuletide, when every merchant rubs his hands with glee or cries in desperation. You sell in the rush and make your fortune, or live like a pauper for the rest of the year. Not me, not this year, not now. Everyone wanted what I was selling. People would need my sugar for their cakes, their puddings, their sweets, and their pies. As my supplies depleted, I broke larger pieces into smaller ones and put my prices up. I asked an arm and a leg now for a small nip and readied myself for a fleshy feast. But none came. Did no one want the sweet taste this year? No sugar mice, no candy canes. I got desperate. I flashed my wares on street corners, calling out my specials. Two lumps for one! And the watchman nearly caught me. They came in a pack, all stomping boots and glinting helmets, and I fled. I ran through dark alleys and curving forgotten passages, with my gold chains clanking and my stash of sugar weighing me down. I lost the men somewhere, ended up propped against the wall, my feet numb inside my snow-soaked boots, my breathing ragged. I couldn't understand why my good fortune had deserted me, and, and why now? So close to those winter feasts. And then I saw her, a woman, all dressed in, in red, with a fur muffler at her throat and her long coat trailing in the snow. I knew what she kept inside even before she opened it to attract customers. I could smell it from across the street. Pocket upon pocket of exotic fruits and spices, ginger and cloves and lemon rind, mustard and nutmeg and peppery sauce. She didn't even have to move. They came to her. Small children with pennies, rich men with gold, Women too poor to offer more than their own teeth or a length of braided hair. They left with their new treasures hidden in baskets of shopping or buried in deep pockets or closed in tiny fists. The white winter sky turned grey and I felt the night coming like an ache in my bones. When there was a pause, nothing but the red-clad woman standing alone like a raw wound in the grey street. I raised my head and stalked towards her. Her eyes flashed when she saw me, and I knew those eyes assessed my worth, taking in everything from the jewels on my fingers to my stained coat, my wet boots, and my fresh white smile. <coughs> she saw me for what I was, a merchant like her, whose fortunes came and went. It'll cost you, love, she said, with a voice like treacle. They've banned the lot this year, left people hungry for every flavor, for any taste at all. They'd banned it all. I could scarce believe it. If it were true, then no wonder my sales had dwindled. 
The shine was off my sugar now. My hands felt sticky with it. My pockets heavy. I, I was bored with the sweet, sickly smell of it. I had nothing but sugar. While she had an array of tastes and sensations to tantalize the palate. Besides, she looked like a yuletide goddess. I was a scraggy old merchant with nothing but my smile to recommend me. She would draw my customers to her like bees to a fragrant flower. And I would have a lean year ahead. Don't take it too hard. She said, leaning towards me and surprising me with a, a honeyed kiss. Leaving my lips sticky with it. I, I don't know whether it was the taste of those lips or the promise of warm spices in the bitter cold. But I forgot who I was in that moment. I fancied I could leave the sugar behind, sell something else, be someone else. Maybe I could trade in spices like her. Maybe I, maybe I wasn't ruined yet. We could make a bargain, I said. But she shook her head and closed her coat. Still, there was a tang to the air. I lifted a gold chain over my head and held it toward her with both hands, begging her to take it. She hesitated, turned away, and glanced back over her shoulder. A gift, I said, if you will trade with me. She took the chain wore it under that enveloping coat. She agreed to trade at last, but she drove a hard bargain. And soon she was wearing my gold and jewels, and all I had to show for it were a few dried peppers and a bag of fiery seeds. She promised they were worth more than gold. I sniffed at them, and I believed her. It was like breathing in some divine my eyes watered in the cold, and the wind froze the tears to my cheeks. We can still trade, she insisted, and her smile was so sweet that I agreed. I turned out my pockets and let her examine my wares, while I eyed hers. She weighed every lump on her palm and waved it under her nose before stowing it away. In exchange... She pressed ginger root and cinnamon sticks into my hands, tickled my skin with strands of saffron. My mouth watered, but I resisted until she dipped a finger and offered a speck of sunshine yellow for me to lick from her skin. After that, I tasted every powder and breathed in every scent until colours flashed behind my eyes and I forgot the monochrome world of snow. Each spice more vibrant than the last and still she found more, untying another bag from her belt or flashing smooth thighs, pulling vials from frilled stockings. I gave her everything I had and gladly just to try it all. When she turned to go, I fell to my knees and begged for more, but I had nothing to offer. 
nothing left to give. My tongue stung, my throat burned, and still I ached for another taste. You've no sugar left, she said with a sour frown. I smell nothing but spices on your breath. She was right. I've tried everything. Now I hadn't anything to trade. I don't know what had come over me, but an intoxication of sensation. I spread my empty hands, offered her anything she wanted. My arms, my legs, my liver. Anything she desired, she could have for one more taste for something new. Anything I had not tried before. She turned her head away. Wait, I said, well, what about these? I pulled back my lips, gritted my flawless teeth. The lady smiled and we shook on it, my hands trembling. She put the necessary implement into my grip. But I did the deed myself. She was not without compassion and gave me poppy seeds to dull the pain. Then, for each red-tipped tooth I dropped into her palm, she placed something new on my tongue. Fennel, caraway, peppercorn. Every time a different flavor, strong enough to hide the metallic taste that flooded my mouth and dribbled down my chin. Afterwards, she ignored my grasping hands my inarticulate moans walked away, the nose in the air. I lay on the snow, <coughs> breathing in a cloud of lingering scents, mouth numb, but tongue tingling, and watched her scarlet cloak disappear into the dark. When the watchman found me, I hadn't the strength to run. I simply pointed the way she'd gone. I hoped they'd catch her and drag her body back past me, lending some fresh flavour to the Waterstones Piccadilly. She has just started her second year on a prose MA course at the University of East Anglia. Margaret has been an actress and voice actor for over 30 years and has performed in theatre, TV, film, radio and commercials and audio guides, voiced video games and narrated several audiobooks. TV includes Coronation Street, The Bell, London's Burning and The Wall. 
Recent audio dramas include Doctor Who, My Boy Jack, and The Christmas Buffet. And for Halloween, an animation as vampire and narrator in a ghostly tale. <coughs> Margaret! to the rhythm of the grandfather clock in the hall, and the dent in the armchair seat is noticeably deeper. I used to roam the house, wandering through the corridors in never-ending spirals, moving from one window to the next, watching. Now that I can see every knot in the wooden banister in my mind's eye, every broken tile in the kitchen floor, prefer to sit. The view from the living room's French windows is encompassing enough. I can see most of the garden, the dark shadows of the forest. Behind me, the corners fill with dust, pale follicles of skin banking up like drifts of snow. Another snowball hits my window. It makes the panes of glass tremble in their frame. I smile. Maybe they also miss me. I'd like that. Once, when I was nine years old, I was quick enough to see the curve of a solitary snowball hit a small tree, shaking free the narrow drifts collected like white mohawks on its branches. I heard the thump, thump of falling snow and watched as the wind whipped the powder into an avalanche of white. At the fluttering moths that circle the wall like in summer. I told my daughter it was useless trying to catch them. But she didn't listen, as I didn't listen to my own mother. On those special nights, as David and I lay in bed, listening. We would often hear the creak of floorboards, floorboards from the nursery above us. And then an exasperated sigh when the dramatic drawing of curtains would reveal an empty garden. They know. Tonight, I let them play. When I rise in the morning, their footsteps are still clearly visible in the thin layer of snow by the back door, and the delicate splinters of frost hardened on my window are shaped like hands. Baby hands. 
I trace the outline with my fingers, and its heat slightly blurs their edges. They are coming closer. I've not seen hands since my husband, since my parents. Aren't you afraid? I had asked them, tracing the hands as I am now. They stopped what they were doing, my mother folding shirts away in a drawer, my father marking the spot for an extra hole on the belt. They looked at each other. I wish my daughter were here to trace these handprints with me. It would help her mourn her father, to see they come for her mother also to see it as a ritual, a tradition. When her time comes, she will be less prepared. If she does, I come back. I wrap myself in a dressing gown and pick my way downstairs in the grey morning light. I boil water, make a cup of tea, and switch on the lampshade next to my armchair in the living room, placing the tea on that by its side. The chair and the room are doubled back at me by the shade's orange glow reflecting off the window, making it hard to see the garden beyond. I fetch the record book from the bookcase and wipe dust from its crannies. The pen I use to log the entry in is always a black fountain pen, and I blow on the page to make the ink dry faster. I can't stop myself from flicking through the leaves, the number of entries dwelling as I flip forward to the present day. The sweet, chocolatey smell of shelved thyme rises from the pages. It reminds me of my childhood, of watching my parents write in the book at breakfast after those special nights. It reminds me of staying up late when the forecast had predicted snow dozing off in front of the fire. Of my father, bursting into the living room, shouting, it started, and then rushing back out, too impatient to wait. I remember my mother and I stumbling into our boots and out into the cold. The snowflakes glinted silver in the sleepy light, and we stuck out our tongues to let them melt on our tips. Why are you doing that? My daughter asked me when she was about four. The first fall had come early morning and I had insisted we go out before breakfast. I'm hoping to swallow an angel, I said, closing my mouth to smile at her. She pondered my answer for a moment. Why? She asked. I wondered do you know what an ancestor is? I replied. She shook her head. It's your family from the past. Imagine the mother of the mother of the mother of your mother. Me. But as far back as you can go. 
and imagine the father of the father of the father of daddy. I hesitated, unsure whether she could understand. Then she nodded. Like Granny and Grandpa, she said. Like Granny and Grandpa, I said. This family from the past has left a lot of letters telling us about themselves, about the family, our family, and about our secret. Her eyes widened in recognition. Our secret, she repeated, making a shushing gesture with her finger. Our secret, I replied, making the same gesture, just like we had taught her. In the letters, they tell us they were angels come from heaven, fallen to earth in the shape of snowflakes. They believed one of our own, a great-grandmother, was in the garden when it started to snow. And as she opened her mouth in wonder at its beauty, an angel snowflake fell in her mouth and accidentally melted on her tongue. I tapped her nose, which normally would make her laugh. But she was deeply taught. Angel, she repeated. My angel. It's been so long since I last saw her. want to remember the last time I saw her. Don't you think swallowing a snowflake has done enough harm to this family? She spat the words. I knew I had to tread carefully. I like to think it's defined the family. It's made us unique, I said, looking away, preferring to examine the trees and the forest around us. And we've never moved on. That's all we do. Wait for them. Wait and grow old and die. There was a silence. A breeze ruffled the needles of the fir trees, tousled her white hair. I'm leaving, she said, breaking the silence. I refuse to sacrifice my life like you have, like you all have. I smiled. I wanted to de-dramatize the situation somehow, but inside my chest, my heart was pounding. None of us wants to become like our parents. It just happens. That's a tragedy every family can relate to. She pondered this, and I saw again the little girl pondering the idea of ancestors and angels. I won't, she said. I refuse to live in the past. There are some things we can't escape from, I said, and I raised my sunglasses to remind her. She looked away. 
There was another silence. The chi work. I can try, she said. And if I can't, at least I can be the last. I close the record book, finish my tea, and dig out the old broom from the closet beneath the stairs. In days gone by, we would rise early on those special mornings, the fire unlit and the sky still a midnight blue to sweep the garden blank. Now I live alone, so isolated and less diligent. The snow is wet and sticks to the bristles. It makes it hard to dust the ground smooth. On the other side of the garden wall, the patterns of footprints twist and loop into the forest, untouched. Don't! My mother shouted when I tried to sneak away. The trail of footprints like breadcrumbs luring me into the forest. Don't! I shouted to my daughter. The day David died. She continued walking into the forest. I tugged at her arm, but she shook me off. You mustn't, I said. I ran to block her path. She pushed past. I grabbed her by the waist and she strained forward until we both fell sideways in the snow. We struggled to our feet, standing opposite each other, panting, our breath materialising as steam. It's not your time, I said. It's not your time. I'm bringing him back! Her voice disturbed two pigeons, whose frightened wing claps shoot snow into our faces. It stoned. The hands, I said. They know. They knew it was his time. He wasn't born into this family. He's an in-law. He shouldn't have left him alone. He married into the family. He is family. I suddenly felt immense guilt as if it were I who had killed him. He knew it was time. How do you know that? How do you know they don't lure them like sirens? I looked into her eyes and saw, for the first time, a milkiness. The process had started and she hadn't realised it. She had. Maybe this was what it was all really about. I know, I said. And I could see again my parents walking barefoot into the snow. It was the click of the front door that had woken me, and I tiptoed to the nursery window. We're holding hands never seen them hold hands before. They turned to look back at the house. The 
and their eyes flashed pearly white in the moonlight. Their elongated shadows stayed with me a few seconds after they disappeared into the forest. My daughter shook her head. When she turned back to the house, I let her go. I let her go, thinking she would come back. The wind tickles the back of my neck, making me shiver. It has started to snow without me noticing. Fat snowflakes that sprinkle on my shoulders like candy. I look at the footsteps. Slowly, slowly losing their form, buried beneath a virgin layer of white. And then back to the house, a light twinkling in the kitchen window. Is it time? My irises and pupils have lost almost all colour. Just three flecks of black remain. Snow children playing at night. My family. The family I've been waiting for. The family that has been waiting for me. creative writing and economics at UEA, and is still unsure which discipline relies on make-believe the most. Katie won the, won the Ronnie Schwartz Scholarship to the Oxford School of Drama and has appeared in over 30 productions in Oxford, Edinburgh and London. She's a novelist and short story writer, director of Liars League, and has directed several fringe plays including Time Out Critics' Choice comedy Dancing Birds. She prefers backstage obscurity, but sometimes steps into the limelight. Katie! Think Fast, Chibba, by Alan Graham. The line for the only toilet in the building is at least six people deep when I join. Christ alive, this place is a hole. A pokey recording studio in North London that's clearly seen better days. Outdated equipment, cramped facilities, and one 
single toilet. Whoever designed the place in the 60s had no idea that one December, 20 years later, the entire British music industry would descend to record yet another Christmas charity single. <laughs> As I wait, I look through the lyric sheet for the song we're recording today to find the couplet intended for me and my sister. I finally located Sandwich Between Lines for Andrew Bridgley and the girls from Bucksbiz. I sing it once, quietly, to myself. Remember when we fill our bellies with starving faces on our tellies. <laughs> Jesus, what do you think they suffered enough? There's <laughs> a loud snort from inside the toilet cubicle followed by a flush as the occupant tries to disguise what he's been up to. And more snow in here than outside. The door flings open and a 40-something man strides out confidently. His expensive look tries to scream, look at me, I'm Don fucking Johnson. But it actually sobs, is I'm twice divorced and stuck in middle management. All right, gorgeous, he cries, striding over and lowering his daytime shades to the end of his nose. Which one are you again, sugar or spice? I always hate this question. <laughs> Especially coming from a creep like this. So I decide to lie. And spice, I simper in a flawless imitation of my sister. Of course you are, he shouts back. It's obvious now. Oh God, you're definitely my favourite. For starters, you've got all the talent. I grin politely at this. Of course, of course, everyone understands why you're talking to Tony LaGuardia about a solo project, he mutters, snapping his nose. I mean, sometimes you've got to cut out the dead words. A silent bomb explodes in my head at this news. My little bitch of a twin. A solo project. I don't let my shock at this revelation show. My polite grin remains flawless. Oh, no disrespect to Sugar. She's a great girl. <laughs> I don't know if you're aware of this, but uh, we had a bit of a thing a while back. <laughs> Just casual. Uh, we don't like to talk about it. I have never touched this man before in my life. Lying bastard. No. He continues, his voice now sleazier than a Radio 1 DJ's. If it doesn't work out with Tony, maybe I can help with your career. From out of nowhere, he produces a business card and creepily places it in my hand. Think about it. I'm the guy who cut Timmy Mallet an album deal. <laughs> I'm about to tell him where he can put his card when there's a loud beeping noise. Pardon me, darling. Claire's reaching into his jacket and pulling out a cutting-edge mobile phone. Most impressive thing about it so far. It's so modern and compact, it's, it's hardly even bigger than a brick. He answers it. Nigel S. Limax, Empire Records. How can you make me richer? There's a slight pause as he covers the mouthpiece with his hand. Catch up later, he winks at me. Been real. I am so furious at my sister that I forget to mutter prick under my breath 
as he walks away. I rack my brain for why she might betray me like this. I mean, we were always so close. She can't still be bitter about a few minor grievances that are built up over time, like, you know, when I wrecked her car by mistake, or there was that party on Simon Le Bon's yacht I didn't tell her about, <laughs> or that filthy gossip I wrote about her on the top of the Pops men's box when I had that quickie with them all. Ooh, all those three boyfriends of hers I slept with. Oh, four, four. If you count the ex-husband. He was an ex at the time. Okay, I realise. As I list it in my head, that it does sound a bit terrible. But over the years, she's done just as bad to me. We are sisters. A few mistakes are no reason to screw me over like this. Fired up with anger, I forget I need the loo and head off to confront her. Turns out she's not even arrived at the studio for our recording yet. So I hail a cab to drive round to her flat. I'm not quite in time. Just as my taxi pulls up, I see her getting into one head into the studio. I'm shocked by what she is wearing. The cow! We'd agreed to coordinate our outfits today. Double denim means business. It's sexy but serious to show that we take whatever it is the single is about seriously. I had honoured the agreement, but she was stabbing me in the back again with her look. A shiny green leotard and pink fluffy leg warmers with a matching off-the-shoulder cardigan. And a purple PVC rah-rah skirt with a chunky gold buckle. I am so busy hating how good she looks. <laughs> but before I know it, her taxi's driven off, and I'm standing on a quiet, snowy street. This feels like a new low, and one that definitely calls for a cigarette. But while rootling my pockets, oh, I find something far oh, more useful. Before my sister turned into a backstabber, we'd exchanged spare keys. And here they are in my coat, just as I'm here outside her empty apartment. I quietly let myself in and begin looking around to see if I can find any further evidence of her betrayal. I barely started when, in a cupboard under the phone, I find a large stash of money. Crisp 20. Hundreds of them. Lots of the stuff, all, all neatly wrapped up. Why would she have all this? The phone suddenly rings and instinctively I pick it up. Hi there! A loud American voice shouts down the phone. Tommy LaGuardia here! Yes? I answer hesitantly. What time is it there in England? He continues. I can never work that out. I guess it's probably uh, midnight or something. Doesn't matter. I'm just calling to confirm the studio recording dates we talked about. Uh, two weeks from January 12th, starting right here in LA. Project Solo is go. Finally, positive proof. My sister is a 100% pure evil backstabbing viper bitch queen from hell. 
But, so you can play it back going. Hi, Tony. I've heard down the line, imitating my sister's was, I'm afraid I can't do those dates after all. Maybe March. I hope that's okay. There's a long, that really isn't okay, pause. And I've been thinking, Tony, I've always really wanted to be taken seriously as a songwriter. So I've decided that this record will be exclusively my own songs, written just by me. Ciao! I hang up. That should have put the fear of God into him. Before I can get back to the money, I'm disturbed by a shuffling sound behind me. Blaze, uh, did you forget something? I spin round to see a bleary-eyed naked man standing at the bedroom door. I recognise his perfect physique instantly. Not his name, obviously. <laughs> but even a dancer on our most recent video, I'd even confided in Spice how much I fancied him. She is definitely not getting away with this. Yeah, I begin again in my sister's voice. You need to leave. It's just not working between us. His beautiful face looks genuinely shocked and a bit sad. It's not you, I continue, it's me. It's not even me, actually. No, it's this other guy I started seeing. Um, he's so much better than you are. I should maybe be feeling a tiny bit guilty over this, but there is something so satisfying about being able to mess with my sister's reputation this way. My new man is wonderful. And I don't mind the whole world knowing. All right, so he might be 57 years old and intermittently incontinent, but Peter Stringfellow is the man for me. His eyes briefly widened in surprise, but he starts getting dressed. Did, did you still want me to pay the guy when he turns up? He asks when he's finally mostly clothed and heading for the door. God, mysterious money. when the doorbell goes again. I buzz whoever it is into the building and wait by the front door, peering through the spy hole. As I watch, a man dressed as Father Christmas emerges from the lift and walks up to the door. Before he reaches it, I open it slightly. Are you here for the money? I whisper. No, he growls sarcastically. I'm here to bring festive Fucking goodwill to all the kiddies! Of course I'm here for the money! I let him in and shut the door. I'm not prepared for what St Nick does at this point. From beneath his beard, he produces a fearsome-looking pistol, capped with an enormous silencer. For a split second, I, I think my life's in danger, but then he smiles at my reaction, takes the money, and starts shoving it into his sack. No one paid. Your sister, good as dead. <laughs> For a split second, I feel like I should be shocked by this revelation that my own twin would want me killed. But then, part of my brain seems to admire it. After all, I I can see the reasoning for it. I'm a rival in so many respects. 
and my death would be a big story. It would help launch her solo career and shift the back catalogue. Well, we're certainly cut from the same cloth, I whispers to myself. Father Christmas looks up at this. Eh, it don't look a lot like her. I'd hate to make an unprofessional error. Shoot the wrong one. I brush my lapel and answer with an executioner's calmness. Eh, she's the one in the shiny green leotards. Pink leg warmers and a purple skirt. You can't miss her. St. Nick seems hurt by that last remark. I don't intend to. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> Can I just say, yes, I'm a big fan of you. Both of you. The music, I mean, your last album was terrific. Um, I'm nonplussed by this. Uh, thanks. And, well, as your sister has to die, I mean, I won't ask questions why not judgmental in this job. It would be nice if one of you could go on making music. I smile wickedly. Oh, I intend to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But <clears throat> for that to work, you've got to get away with it. I mean, the moment her brains get splattered, begging your pardon, everyone's going to think it was you. You don't mind me giving you a bit of advice, love. Compliments of the season. I'd be getting yourself a patsy. Some dumb schmuck you can frame for all this. The smartest folk even get their patsy to hand over the money without telling them what it's for. I feel a pang of admiration towards my soon-to-be-late sibling at this news. Still, we have a saying in this game, it's never too late to frame a mate. <laughs> <laughs> you can think of anyone stupid and malleable, well, I'd be giving them a tinkle pronto. Thank you, I reply. <laughs> Merry fucking Christmas, Jules Santa. And with that, he's gone. I move fast. Drag an idiot into this. I can't do it. I need someone wealthy and well connected, but insecure enough to lie about his success with women. <laughs> <laughs> I pull out a business card from my pocket. As I wait on hold, I spy a framed gold disc hanging on the wall celebrating our first album, Fun for Tall, just above the drinks cabinet, exactly where I'll keep mine. We're both on it. Beautiful, ruthless mirror images. Finally, a voice cuts in. Nigel S. Limax, Empire Records. How can you make me richer? I look again. My sister's cold, haughty face. I think she would understand. <laughs> Your drinks and chase an angel up a tree. You have 15 minutes. <laughs>
as usual, and even though on this occasion we can actually see you, we want you to wave your arms in the air and shout, Santa baby, if you think you know the answer. Or sing, You can sing as well as you wish to. Shall we have a trial run? One, two, three. Santa baby! They know what they're doing. So, um, I'm assuming we're not introducing the books because they're all... The mystery books! For... It's Santa's mystery. So how do they get to, the, how do they get to pick? Uh, well, they just have to choose the one... They that... point at it. Yeah, they just point. Hey. Yeah. Right. Lucky dip. And how many books can we have? We have nine. Nine! So you better be really, really intelligent because I only have enough questions for about that number, okay? Okay, let's get going. Which fairy tale character's final lines are I'm quarter gone, I'm half gone, I'm three quarters gone? Oh, yes! Is correct! Point to a book! Pick a mystery bag. Can I have the Lego one that's hanging on the window? This one? Yes. It is Schroeder. Seldom has such a daring concept for a novel been grounded in such an appealing character, says Jonathan Branson. Next question. Who wrote the score to the 1892 seasonal ballet, The Nutcracker? That's that's baby. Baby. Yes, Tchaikovsky. It's correct. It was. <laughs> Pick a bag. Pick a bag. Okay, this one is close. Katie's Choice. Oh. It's called Katie's Choice. <laughs> now this oh, wow. is a t- micro book, a tiny volume of poetry called Spring Once More by Rishi Dastidar, and it is in a limited edition of 100. Very special. Stick that in the stocking. Okay. <laughs> Actually, you probably could. Fair question. Which miserly Victorian said, and I will not accept me as the answer? Bar humbug. Oh, what's well, 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 well. it? I, I, I'm, I'm going. Oh. It is uh, yeah, all right. It was very, very quick. <laughs> This is one of the Myers anthologies, and if you're unlucky enough not to win a book this evening, and bearing in mind the proportions of books, there are books for sale as well, and there are only a five pounds. So there you go. Fourth question: Which Grimm siblings stumble upon a cottage made of gingerbread? Yes, go on. Is correct. Yes. Well done. Anyone catch your fancy? Uh, this, this one or that one? Uh, this one? Okay. The one that says tolerant. Tolerant. Okay. The actual title is Gluten Tolerant Stories Originally Four. Analyze. <laughs> 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 How apt. <laughs> 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 it is. It's a monster. Question five. What is the literal translation? of the Icelandic tradition of Jolla Bokoflop. Is that the Santa Baby? Yes. Christmas book flood? Yes! Yes! 
Christmas Eve and eating them and reading them in bed with chocolate. It's a great country. How we not adopted that immediately? Sixth question. Which sugary sweet was Edmund trented with in Lions? Oh, wow, okay. You, uh, lady at the back. Uh, no, in the middle. Yes. Sorry. Turkish delight. It's correct. Find a narcotic that extends life, turns your eyes blue. Oh, so so no. Oh, so the baby. You can't want to read it. Allow it to somebody else. Oh, yes, yes. Do you? It's not the official name. Arrakis. Oh, he's giving it away. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you don't donate. Somebody else. That's one of our authors. Should we donate? We no, 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 Kill them all! <laughs> By John Niven, the tale of a rapacious music industry executive. Oh. <laughs> so please send it to Alan Graham. Who inspiration. <laughs> Question nine. We're doing very well. To what 1999 novel is The Strawberry Thief a sequel? It is! Well done, everybody. Now, we have one other uh, admission.
administration task, if you like. We do. Another Christmas tradition for Liza. Lisa winning that book has slightly got in the uh, way of the presents, okay, but nonetheless, well, no, it's fine. Uh, we've got many. Um, so, uh, every year we count up the number of performances actors have done for us and the number of stories successful writers have written for us, and we name the Liars League most valuable players of the year. Uh, and this year, there is one clear winner in the acting category. Who's probably sitting somewhere? Yeah, oh, there she is. <laughs> it is, and I won't ask you to get up. It is <laughs> Gloria Swanson. Can you have one of these books? Yes, I've got all of them. <laughs> <laughs> I have not arrived in time because Christmas. If you don't mind waiting, we'll get you a mug. We'll get you a mug. Yeah. Would anybody like one? <laughs> <laughs> I'll donate one shall I? Okay, which, which one would you like? The blue one. The blue one. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. <laughs> in the spirit of the season, that's very kind of it. Um, the winner of the most valuable player um, writing is the magnificently tall <laughs> doorstop, <laughs> Alan Graham. Includes Sandra in Tip Top, Penny in Black Star, both at the Arcola Theatre, Slam Minutes at Pleasance, and Miss Tarleton in Miss Alliance. Recent films include the lead roles of Grace in Just Saying and Rose <coughs> in Skeletons. Radio includes lead roles of Ziggy in Retribution for Right Hour Drama Podcast. Carrie! <laughs> Rowley Grant. The perfect apple cake, loved by grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and invading rats, needs six last-of-the-season English russets. 
From where she lies in the orchard's long wet grass, looking up into the apple tree's twisted limbs, she counts 74, 75, 76. Their rough skins wet with dew. A snap, a breath, and a deep thump break the silence as another falls. 75. Falling on the heads of scientists, given to princesses who fall asleep, passed between Eve and falling Adam. And then they lie, rotting in neglected grass, waiting to turn the ankles of old ladies who fall flat on their backs as the moon rises. She'd been out there in the garden after midnight, setting bad cakes for the rats. Six English russets, and to make a good cake bad, a scoop of green powder from the red box at the back of the shed. The instructions said to put small piles of the stuff in the corners of outbuildings, but the rats weren't interested in an old shed full of rusted tools. They came from across the fields, sniffing out her fresh seeds just below the surface, digging up her baby plants. Poison put down outside just washed into liquid mass, weeping into the soil it was supposed to protect. Dangerous for curious little fingers that might poke at it. She wanted to ask for help, but talking about rats and poison would lead to another family conversation about the suitability of her living here alone. So, she'd made the cakes. A variation on a classic. Flour, eggs, butter, brown sugar and spices. Star anise and cinnamon. The pages of the recipe book are stained and thumbed. Then the diced apples. The little half-moon slices from the best reserved for decorations, carefully layered by a shaking hand. She divides the mixture Half going into bake, the other half receiving a cupful of the powder and a top up of cinnamon to keep the cats away. When all was done, the cooling oven clicking and whistling, she would look for a while at the two cakes sat at opposite ends of the kitchen counter before they were boxed away. Blue Tupperware for friends. She'd go out well after dark when all the birds had flown home to set a cake in the orchard, its warm, sweet smell making a mist of moisture inside the box. But tonight, moving to examine a likely gap in the hedge, she'd stepped on an apple and fallen with a pain like the end of everything. She'd been sick a little into her crisp grey hair and then lay there, arched and tense, her mouth opening and closing in a soundless howl. She's 
there now, hours later, the air drenched with the living smell of the earth. Cold from the orchard's long wet grass has seeped through her trousers into her legs and negotiated a common temperature. Her mouth is dry for making a cooing sound with each breath for comfort and because she had to. Slowly, she starts to hear other sounds, rustles from the hedges. The pain becomes a numbness. Her breathing slows and she can think again. Putting her coat around her, she realises once again that discomfort cannot kill her. There will be no blockage, no stoppage. She'd admitted to herself long ago that the cold didn't cause colds. Things fall from the sky. Apples, bombshells that tend to miss. She wonders, not for the first time, if her capacity to endure is superhuman. But as she tries to roll over and crawl, her own whole body is as stiff as sticks. And the pain lurks, ready to pounce on any movement. What hurts? She'd asked her husband long ago, holding his hand at the edge of the bed. What hurts? She'd asked her son in a hospice not so long ago. She lies back, gasping at how freedom ends. Her grandchildren had been telling her it was time. It started when her grandson spent all weekend cleaning the kitchen, sweating and fussing about dirt in the corners of cupboards, confused about where everything belonged. But after that, she'd worked extra hard to prove them wrong, turning over pitifully small patches of earth to grow lettuces and sugar snaps, making patches of jam with loose lids. But the argument wouldn't go away. She'd sent her bank details to the address at the back of a magazine and her grandson had sat down opposite her, holding her hand to explain that not everything in life was as advertised. She should have replied that freedom from consequence was the only joy of living this long. Oh, but it only come to her later. The final straw, said the family in stern voices, was when she'd set fire to a for sale sign in the vacant lot behind her house and referred to prospective neighbours as invaders. Her family lived too far away, they said, to be there quickly. She should move. There were other places with company, cleanliness and the internet. No cold callers, no bills, no rats. But she'd heard no not eating proper meals and no losing track of time, no going to bed at one, two, three. She felt powerfully it would be without beauty, that new place, those medicated afternoons. To stay here 
for one last Christmas in her own house, she'd agreed to be visited every morning by a woman from the village, Carol. Nice to her grandson, perfunctory when he'd gone. Less of a helper, she can still do everything herself. A more of a watcher, waiting for mistakes to report back and call time. She thinks about this now, lying under the apple tree. Maybe she slept or dreamed. But a change in the air tells her morning will come and a little fire of anger is warming her now. How many of them would have survived the night? She slowly turns her head to lick dew from the grass. She's a fallen limb, frozen to the earth. Her toes and nose are twigs poking above the grass. Her fingers are worms tapping the surface of the soil. She moves her hand in an arc across the grass until she feels with a thrill the curve, cold curve of an apple. Bringing it to her face, she takes a tiny bite. It's all hers. They say old age is the end of new experiences, yet here she is doing what some people never will, lying in a garden at dawn. She wipes a wet hand across her hair. I say, when you live alone, visitors stop calling, but she's surrounded. Moths flashing the colour under their wings are deciding if it's time for bed. A harvestman spider tiptoes across her forehead, feeling pinpricks of water. Swifts dart, silently getting on with things. And in the tree, little dens of earwigs are hiding between tight roots of fruit, mining beads of apple thread. She dreams she'll plant hawthorns this spring all along the perimeter. She'll feed them blood and bone like a giant pumpkin and the thorns will grow so thick that no one will be able to get in. She's calm, dispatching infinite time with practices, and when she hears the care worker's car in the driveway at the other side of the house, she's counting apples. 76, 77, 78, bathed in a growing patch of sunlight. <clears throat> she smiles at the sound of doors opening, her name being called, and trying to lift her cake, her head, she sees the bad cake sat in its pink box, nestled in the grass just out of reach. Eventually, Carol will come out here and stand above her. Carol will see how wet and messy she is, and there will be shock and dismay. 
Carol will put her palm on parts of her stricken body, her shoulder, her hip, her knee, like a cabbage white flitting over greens. Jay asks, what happened? And what hurts? There won't be any way to stop her calling an ambulance, hospital, and then later telling it all to the family, maybe the council. So with a new effort, she pushes herself up on elbows that sink in the earth, twisting, holding her breath until her shoulders are propped up against the tree roots. She wipes her hands on the grass and then across her face, smoothing her hair. Oh, morning, she'll say. <laughs> My favourite spot. Carol, alarmed, will try to get her up and inside. <laughs> In a minute, she'll reply, let's enjoy the sun first and say how much she'd like a cup of tea. And when Carol comes back out, not knowing quite what's going on, and sees the box and asks about the cake, she'll say, oh, my famous apple cake, made with six English russets. <laughs> Carol will have to suggest they have a piece. And the owner of the house has decided absolutely that she is staying right here, will curl her lip inwards and make a sound like, exaggerated promises and outrageous lies because that's the way the league swings but I can definitely say that we'll be back at the Phoenix in February for the first of those themes whatever it is and so the final story of the evening will be Sugar and Spice Weekly Words by J.A. Hopper be read by MVP, Gloria Sanders. <laughs> J.A. Hopper's previous stories, The Liars Lee, Mother's Milk, Wee She, and Father Figure, featured a vampire cannibal baby, thousands of sentient dolls, and a divorcee in love with Peppa Pig's dad. <laughs> this one is marginally less weird. She said. <laughs> she lives in Cambridge with her four-year-old daughter, from whom she steals all the best ideas. <laughs> Gloria trained at Drama Studio London. She regularly narrates audiobooks for the RNIB, and recently joined the cast of Time Will Tell's Dracula at Whitby Abbey. She often works as a historical interpreter at heritage sites around the country, and has continued her training in clowning and historic fooling. <laughs> Gloria! <laughs> Dear P, 
Friday. Merry Christmas to those who celebrate it. And welcome to your weekly words from everyone at Sugar and Spice Day Nursery. The children have had lots of fun this week, exploring the world and embracing learning. And we have some lovely pictures in this newsletter later on. But first, some dates for your diary. We know the children love our dressing up days and the grown-ups love the photos, if not making the costumes, smiley face. <laughs> so next week's nursery Christmas party theme is poems. Please, bring your child to nursery dressed as a character from their favourite poem. For example, Stick Man by Julia Donaldson. Um, the Gruffalo by Julia Donaldson. The <laughs> uh, Gruffalo's Child by Julia Donaldson. Actually, you can think of plenty, even if they're not by Julia Donaldson. Or maybe we should just call it our annual nursery Julia Donaldson party. <laughs> Smiley face. Uh, <laughs> I've just looked at the learning display, and there's also Roald Dahl and Doctor's Use. But we must stress that only costumes based on poems are acceptable, which means no Peppa Pig, Thomas the Tank Engine in the Night Garden, Teletubbies, Pingu, Paw Patrol, Sesame Street, if anyone watches that anymore, and definitely no minions. <laughs> there will be a prize for the best homemade costume, not panic bought off the peg at Tesco, please, smiley face. We want you and your children to um, share in the magical creativity of making a costume together. <laughs> also coming up next week is This Girl Can Day. And again, we encourage all children, irrespective of gender or gender presentation, to dress uh, as an inspiring woman, for example, Greta Thunberg, Marie Curie, or Selena Gomez. Please, no Disney princesses. <laughs> Although we realise that toddlers can be quite insistent, so if your son or daughter wishes to dress up as Sleeping Beauty or Cinderella, this is permitted, so long as she, he, can name three aspirational qualities in the princess, which must not include being pretty or having pretty dresses. Example might be bravery, resourcefulness, and marksmanship for Pocahontas, or a strong work ethic, honesty, and a lovely singing voice for Snow White. Although, as she spent most of her time as a domestic drudge for seven minors, perhaps she's not the best example. <laughs> Finally, Sugar and Spice is closed for staff training on Friday the 30th of January and again on Monday the 15th of February. I know nobody ever reads these announcements because you're all skimming ahead for photos of your kids looking at snow or playing with spaghetti or whatever. So we'll get several indignant phone calls months down the line when we remind people with a week to go. But we've given you plenty of notification now, so don't say you weren't warned. God forbid you should have to spend time with your own kids. We <laughs> love <laughs>
<laughs> Head Office wants the newsletter out on time this week. If anyone's actually reading this, then have a mulled wine for me. I'm on my fourth coffee this afternoon. It's also my five-year anniversary of getting dumped by John because I quote, I hate Christmas and I hate your family, so why would I want to spend Christmas with your family? <laughs> when I crumpled on the floor crying because I die alone and never have kids, he added, why do you even want children? Don't you get enough of them at work? So how do you still sing the way to me? Maybe I'll get the kids to dress up for it next year. <laughs> this week at Sugar and Spice, toddler room. This week, the toddlers to the Christmas bar in the park. They were very excited to go on the merry-go-round and play in Santa's snow pit. <laughs> and Alfie C found a toy reindeer in the pretend snow. He was disappointed to have to put it back, but Ariana explained about other people's toys and also about hygiene, so it was a learning opportunity for Alfie C. And we all washed our hands before we left. Some of us in muddy puddles, but it was good enough for Alfie C. Apparently it's good enough for Alfie C. <laughs> the outing was cut short because it started hailing after 20 minutes that the little ones had fun exploring the texture of hard things and trying to eat the hail. <laughs> the more adventurous ones found out what happens when you try to run on an icy playground, even though you've been one lots of And Erica and Poppy and Alfie S all benefited from learning experiences. <laughs> Involving knees and plasters. <laughs> when we got back to nursery, we all sang Hail, hail, go away And heads, shoulders, knees and toes <laughs> I wonder what the statute of limitations is on exes Is John still my ex after five years and two more relationships? Or is he her ex now? Flicky blonde Becky who is spread all over his Instagram like avocado on sourdough a week after we split up. <laughs> he upgraded to that shiny lawyer type pretty quick though, or maybe Becky saw the light and dumped him. We should form a support group. We could have Christmas cocktails and talk about literally anything but kids. <laughs> <laughs> preschool room. This week in preschool room, we welcomed Rosie, who has come to us from Precious Poppets Day Nursery in Kilburn. Probably because Sarah, Sarah Legrand, the manager, is basically an alcoholic. Though after two decades in early years education, who can blame her? <laughs> no judgement here! Rosie is nearly four. She's small and quiet with pigtails and enormous black manga eyes that seem to rake the very bowels of your soul. <laughs> we also welcomed Maxine, who's never been in nursery before, and my God, it shows. <laughs> She's an enormous three-year-old who spent half her first morning throwing Duplo at everything that moved and the other half doing a gorilla dance to the musical tool bench, which plays, if I had a hammer, whenever you hit it. Maxine hit it a lot. <laughs> Shelley guessed about 30 to 35 times, non-stop, before it was actually lunchtime. <laughs> Maxine ate everything at lunch including a few pages of Room on the Broom by Julia Donaldson, <laughs> which someone left under the table. <laughs> Julia Donaldson doesn't even have an English degree, you know. <laughs> I have. <laughs> 
<laughs> One day you'll be managing this circus and Instagram stalking your ex's latest shiny lawyer girlfriend because you can't sleep for thinking about the climate crisis or stop reading articles about when and how we're all going to die. <laughs> Honestly, we should be having World Survivalism Day. Prepare the kids for what's coming, not dressing the poor buggers up as Gruffalos. <laughs> Brains and beauty on my side, height on his. <laughs> and those gorgeous dark curls. Pretty sure our kids would have been perfect, but whatever, Joe. Seven thirty, Jesus. Good job I don't have anywhere to go. Right, proofread, take out all the sarcastic comments. Delete, delete, delete. Insert pictures of the kids looking at snow and playing with spaghetti. <laughs> At least Mad Maxine looks cute in her photos. Like Ted Bundy. <laughs> Never guess the brutal insanity that simmers behind those big dark eyes. I don't know how single mums do it. Poor Mummy Max, whatever her name is, it's in the files. Suppose I should write up the new starter form before the Prosecco reaches my fingertips. Pretty sure Dad's AWOL. No wedding ring, no mention of Daddy. Let's see. <clears throat> uh, Maxine Harrison, age three. Mother, Miss. <laughs> Rebecca Harrison, alternative contact Mrs. Sheila Harrison, must be grandma. <laughs> Rebecca. Becky Harrison. Flicky blonde Becky spread all over John's Instagram like avocado on sourdough. And the size of that kid, huge for her age. Like John, tall, the black curly hair. No wonder Becky vanished from the face of the internet. Got dropped for the shiny lawyer. So that's what a child with John would be like. <laughs> no offence, Mummy Max. I dodged a bullet there. Rather <laughs> you than me. Poor Becky Harrison. Flicky, no more. Knackered and lonely, just slightly. Maybe we should form a support group. <laughs> we could have Christmas cocktails and talk about literally. 